This is TechSnap, episode 411, for September 6th, 2019. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes and I'm joined by Jim. What's up, everybody? Wes, I thought today we might talk about some mobile stuff and, as usual, security issues. And uh, this is one of my absolute favorite things. Let's poke some fun at iPhones. And we have plenty of opportunity this week after Google revealed what may be one of the largest attacks against iPhone users ever. Earlier this year, Google's Threat Analysis Group discovered a small collection of hacked websites. And those websites were being used to just indiscriminately attack their visitors. It happens that they were using an interesting iPhone Zero Day. Actually, more than one, uh, Tag was able to collect five separate, complete, and unique iPhone exploit chains, covering almost every version of the operating system from 10 up to 12. The very detailed blog posts also serve as a great review of some of the common problems in any software ecosystem. Things like cases of code which probably never worked, code that likely bypassed the QA department, and code that just obviously was never tested at all before being shipped to end users. And of course, what's the result? Well, bad security things for you, possible iPhone user out there. Yeah, you know, Wes, this is one of those things that uh, it really bugs the crap out of me because in my day-to-day consulting business, I encounter all the time people who just keep, you know, blindly repeating this line that, oh, well, you know, I would be scared to run Android because those things get hacked all the time. And, uh, you know, Apple keeps me safe. I've got the walled garden. Everything's carefully vetted. I'll be the first to admit, yes, you will find more malware applications in the Google Play Store than you'll typically find in Apple's App Store. But, you know, these chains of exploits, uh, they were running for years, and you didn't have to install anything. Uh, if you visited one of these websites, that was all it took. You didn't need to click on anything. You didn't need to accept anything. If you were on that site, it would attack the device, install a monitoring implant, and uh, it's not even so much about the individual exploits, because the thing is, you know, the uh, the organizations that ran these sites were using multiple exploits over periods of years to just keep it going and attack any phone that ended up on that site. And the implant itself had access to your keychains, which means every password on the device, and it could relay any of the sensitive data to the operators. So there are probably a lot of iPhone users out there that are wondering, you know, how did my secure password end up in this, you know, password dump? I'm not reusing passwords between sites. Uh, I'm not installing shady applications. You know, how could this have happened? And one possibility is you might have just clicked the wrong link one time and it game over. There are some startling screenshots in one of these showing just some common apps, things like WhatsApp and Telegram. And these exploits then got access to the unencrypted databases backing those apps. So the screenshots just show plain text messages. And uh, I don't know about you, Jim, but I've certainly sent a text or two. I'd prefer not to be out there. I mean, I have, but honestly, I would be a lot more worried about my email password than any individual text message I'd sent. Now, there are a ton of vulnerabilities in this report, some that have been patched and some that were zero days, at least at the time that they were first found by Google. I will highlight just one interesting case study, and that was a bug in libxpc, which is an inter-process communication library used on iOS. 
And it was just basically a refactoring which led to a bad balance check. And this can happen all the time, but as the researcher writes, it's difficult to understand how this error could be introduced into a core IPC library that's shipped to end users. While of course these errors are common, a serious one like this should have been quickly found by any degree of unit testing, code review, or fuzzing. It's especially unfortunate because this is a natural target. Shades of common text framework on Windows 10, right? <laughs> right. Now, there is at least one little silver lining here, Jim, in that these attacks were not persistent. If you did go and reboot your iPhone, well, you'd be safe again. Right, but uh, how often does anybody actually reboot their phone? Are you sure, Jim? Let me just check my... Oh, 20, 27 days, yeah. Okay, I take your point. I also take your point about the supposed security benefits of iOS. Not to say that Apple doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about that and have made you know many excellent moves in that direction, but I really like what, the, what some people at Project Zero said about this, which is, real users make risk decisions based on the public perception of the security of these devices. And, and that's what you're saying, Jim. But the reality remains that security protections will never eliminate the risk of being attacked if you're targeted or if you just you know, if you're subject to something that's sitting around being taken advantage of. So it's important that we all be conscious of the fact that these are out there, no matter no matter if you apply your updates or not, and that, sure, we use our phone every day, but in the wrong circumstances, they can be compromised and upload basically your every action to a database that could be used against you. Yeah, Wes, really, I mean... One of the critical lessons here, I, I kind of hate that you said, you know, whether you uh, apply your updates or not, that's true, of course, but apply your updates, folks. But, um, you know, the other thing that, about that is no matter what platform you choose and how conscientious you are about applying your updates, you know, there's still an onus on you to not use that device stupidly. Um, if you install every single shiny free app you can find in whatever device's application store is, if you just browse with wild abandon to every shady click on the internet, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Our next story is a great example of that. There's an interesting new Android Zero Day bug that is unfortunately not included in the patch set that just came out for September. And okay, so this is just a privilege escalation bug. We see these all the time. To make it actually work, the attacker has to have some some sort of you know low privilege code running on your system. Like you might need to install their app, say. And, and so you're exactly right. If you go install tons of things from random sources, sure, the operating system usually has security mechanisms in place to try to protect your data and to protect your system from possibly malicious apps. But all it takes is a bug in say the video for Linux code in Android when you're recording a video, something like that, and suddenly all those protections are meaningless. So you still really need to be careful no matter what operating system you have. The really interesting thing about that to me, Wes, is that uh, you know Google just said, basically, we're not going to bother fixing that. The, the scope of the vulnerability is that if uh, somebody uses the video for Linux driver, say, to record a video and it processes a maliciously crafted file, then you can get a privilege escalation exploit out of the thing, and now you can run in a more privileged context than the user context you were initially operating under. It really surprises me that Google said we're not going to bother with that, because that's exactly the kind of exploit that people jailbreak phones with. Yeah, absolutely. And it's never an ideal situation when the vulnerability is out there publicly without a patch available. 
Although, you know, Wes, if we really wanted to put our tinfoil hats on, we could speculate that uh, maybe the fact that's exactly the kind of vulnerability that people use to jailbreak phones, maybe that's exactly the reason Google doesn't want to bother fixing it. Uh, because, you know, if you bought a Pixel phone or a Nexus before it, you don't need to do some kind of special exploit to jailbreak it. You can just turn on developer mode and get root on your device for yourself. The folks that need to jailbreak their Android phones are the ones who buy from OEMs that aren't running pure stock Android from, uh, you know, you buy your phone from AT&T or whatever carrier, and they want to make sure that you've got, you know, all of their vendor-loaded crapware, bloatware, whatever on there, and you can't uninstall it. So those folks want to jailbreak those phones to get rid of all the garbage that they otherwise can't. And it occurs to me, I really don't think this is actually the case, but it's kind of a fun tinfoil hat conspiracy. What if Google was like, you know, the scope of this exploit is such that we don't really see it causing people that many problems in the wild, but it is one heck of a way for people to get the ability to jailbreak their phone and escape from the horrible things that their OEM you know, carriers are trying to do to them. Hey, I like that silver lining. I think for now, unfortunately, the uh, only other thing you can do besides maybe jailbreak your phone is uh, just be careful with your apps and uh, maybe don't record so many videos. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons also that Google might not have been that worried about uh, you know, closing this privilege escalation exploit is that most of the time you figure if you've actually installed a malware app, it's pretty much game over already. Um, it certainly widens the expanse of nasty things you can do to somebody if you get root on their phone. But even just from the context of a normal user app, there, there are so many possibilities for tricking the user with you know fake application windows that look like some other app that they wanted to run or, you know... You find things like uh, fake lookalike apps, like something that claims to be Signal, but it isn't. Of course. It it looks like Signal. It'll connect you to your friends who use Signal, but it's actually just like a forked copy, and it's you know busily reporting everything in the background to whoever installed it. So generally, you, you really kind of have to avoid installing the malware app to begin with. As usual, you know, maybe just do less. Install fewer apps and uh, just run what you need. And, you know, there's one more thing I actually want to go ahead and add to that, Wes. In today's episode of Jim Salter Rants at the Internet, one of the things that has just pissed me off consistently, you know, I get pitches from product vendors. They've got a new product and they want me to test this device or this gadget and hopefully review it on a website somewhere. And more and more frequently these days, in order to fully review this product, I have to install an app on, uh, you know, my test Android phone. I, I don't install these things on my main device because no. Um, but the thing is, what I see over and over and over again is the instructions for these, you know, IoT gadgets or, or what have you. They just tell you to go download the app from the App Store. Like there's not a QR code to scan. There's not a link to a website. It just says, oh, go download blah app. This leads you to just search the Google Play Store or, you know, Apple's App Store for the name of this thing. And frequently, there's 10 different applications with names that sound like that. And you're just kind of left to guess. And you're like, am I installing the thing that actually legitimately is what this company wants me to control this device with? Or am I putting malware on my phone? Who knows? Let's click it and find out. The moral of that story being, you know, if you are a manufacturer and you're putting out a product and that product requires your users to install an app on the phone, print a QR code, give them a link 
something to click that will guaranteed go directly to the actual application you want them to use, because otherwise you just don't know what's going to happen. In the old days, you just, you know, ship a CD along with the product, but who has an optical drive anymore? I got one on my phone. You don't? There's another angle to these recent vulnerabilities that you brought up, Jim, and frankly, it's fascinating. You know, I think we're all used to thinking of, of iOS as sort of the paragon of, of mobile security, at least compared with the uh, quagmire of various Android versions that are out there. But a recent article over in Wired tells a more interesting evolving story. So I need to explain a little background before we actually get into the meat of this one. Um, if you don't live your day-to-day life as an InfoSec researcher, uh, you know, for one, you probably sleep a lot better. And for two, you may not realize that there is a thriving market for zero-day vulnerabilities. One of the places that you might sell a vulnerability that you discover in a phone is a company called Zerodium. They buy and sell these zero-day exploits. And uh, they have price lists where they will give you, you know, up to X amount of money for a zero-day, zero-click exploit for Android or iPhone. Now, for the longest time, you know, these kinds of companies, the general market for exploits has paid a lot more for iOS exploits than for Android. Five years ago, you could get up to $100,000 for a zero-day Android exploit, but you get up to $500,000 for a zero-day iOS exploit. The tables have turned on that one. Right now, Android exploits are actually more expensive than iPhone exploits. Wow. Now, surely Android's popularity must play into this, right? Well, you know, it, it probably does. That's uh, it's, it's a completely fair point to make, but it's not the whole story. Um, typically, when you talk about the Android market versus the iOS market and, you know, how you monetize access to that, whether that's legitimately or through just hacking people's crap, the common wisdom has been that the iOS market is worth more because it's more upscale consumers that own the iPhone devices. Ah, right. But uh, that's really not going to be the whole story here because in Wired's coverage on this shift of fortunes in between, you know, selling Android and iOS exploits, they spoke to Zerodium's founder. And he said that uh, during the last few months, they've observed an increase in the number of iOS exploits, mostly Safari and iMessage chains that are being developed and sold by researchers from all around the world. The zero-day market is so flooded by iOS exploits that we've started refusing some of them. That is a huge change, and I can't imagine makes an unpatched iOS user feel very safe at night. No, I wouldn't think so. And meanwhile, the same guy, you know, the founder of Zerodium that buys and sells these vulnerabilities, he also said that Android security is improving with every new release thanks to the security teams at Google and Samsung. It's become very hard and time-consuming to develop full chains of exploits for Android, and it's even harder to develop zero-click exploits that don't require further user interaction. So for its top bounties, Zerodium is actually focusing on Google, Samsung, Huawei, and Sony devices. He says that exploits for other devices are still interesting, and they do still buy them, but their price is discussed on a case-by-case basis. Wired also spoke to a security researcher who had what I thought was an interesting idea about some of this. They credit Android's increased security partly to its open-source strategy finally paying off. While Apple has kept its operating system so locked down that even benevolent security researchers have difficulty sussing out its bugs, Android's open-source approach has meant way more eyes on the code. And while obviously that led to a lot of bugs being discovered right from the get-go, most of those have been patched over time, slowly hardening the operating system. 
you would think in uh, in in the year 2019 we'd have learned the lesson by now that security through obscurity is not security at all. Um, if you keep the white hats away from your infrastructure, then they can't help you lock it down, and you really can't keep the black hats away. They're going to be chipping at it no matter what. But when you make it harder for the good guys to get in and find these problems and report them to you, you have these long-running exploit chains. And that was one of the things that struck me about you know what we talked about earlier with these browser-based exploits where you know you just you click the wrong link in the browser and you know safari on your iphone and you end up giving up all your passwords to whoever's running the malicious website those things were running for years at a time and that in particular strikes me as you know that's the kind of risk that you run when you lock out the white hat researchers uh you know yeah it might be harder even for the black hats to find those bugs but once they do man they get a long window to exploit them and we see that they definitely do. Now, one thing we should mention uh, about this marketplace, Android does have a lot of issues with security patching and other problems, you know, just because of how Android is made and the variety of different companies having their own forks and, and updating at their own pace. That's not captured here as Zerodium focuses on zero-day vulnerabilities in fully patched devices. And of course, those are what go for the most money. Well, Wes, since we've been talking about mobile, let's pivot a little bit from security and talk about changes in connectors and cables that are coming up. The USB Implementers Forum released the official USB 4 protocol specification this Tuesday. Um, now, if you're anything like me, your initial reaction to that was probably, oh, no, not again. But don't worry. Uh, it is completely backward compatible with USB 2 and USB 3. And this is the really important part as far as I was concerned. It does use the same USB Type-C connectors that we've slowly been starting to get used to on modern USB 3 devices like my Pixel 2. Whew. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, that... <laughs> That makes me feel a lot better. I'm slowly replacing everything in my life that I can with USB-C. There's a few holdouts, unfortunately, but we definitely don't need to go backwards. Yeah, my heart just completely dropped when I first saw that. I was like, oh, no, I'm just now getting enthusiastic about USB-C. Don't, don't give me a whole nother set of like things I have to keep up with. But no, your USB-C cables that you've already bought for USB-3, they will work with USB-4. Um, if you want to have access to the absolute highest possible charging and data rates, you may end up needing to buy uh, new dual lane cables, uh, particularly USB 4 optionally integrates Thunderbolt 3 support. Now, Thunderbolt 3 is capable of 40 gigabit signaling rate, and you will definitely need 40 gigs certified cables for that. But for the most part, your existing USB-C cables designed for 3 should work just fine with 4. Okay, so Thunderbolt brings brings up a good question here. There's some confusion around USB-C, right? We've got we've sort of got like the cable and the the physical dimensions, and then we've got the various protocols that are carried over. One of them sometimes being Thunderbolt, right? And you have cables that look the same but are doing radically different functions. Does USB four make this worse? Does it make it better? Maybe. I think it probably makes it a little bit better, to be honest. Um, it's still not great because USB four has three different speeds available. Uh, it can be designed for 40 gigabit uh, signaling or 20 gigabit or 10 gigabit. You, know, you, you have to have the right cables 
If you've got a single lane cable, it's only going to work for the 10 gigabit signaling rate for 20 gigabit or 40 gigabit. You're going to need dual lane cables. If you've bought USB-C cabling recently, unless you've gone just incredibly cheap, you've probably gotten dual lane cables. But yeah, that is something you're going to have to figure out as well as whether your device actually supports it. You know, when you look at a laptop that's got USB 4 ports on there, just because it's USB 4 is not going to tell you whether it's capable of 10, 20, or 40 gigabit. So you're going to have to have the right specs on your laptop and on the peripheral and on the cable that goes in between them. Uh, the last thing is that although Thunderbolt 3 support is available on USB 4, it's an optional feature. It's not required. And although Intel did donate the specification for Thunderbolt 3 to the USB Implementers Forum, and it is now freely available without royalties required, the technology is royalty-free. The branding is not. So if you want to advertise that your laptop supports Thunderbolt 3 on its USB 4 ports, that is still, as far as we know, going to require uh, extensive certification and validation through Intel, which is not free. Wow. I suspect that that's probably going to eventually end up with manufacturers figuring out, you know, some kind of like dog whistle, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge way of letting you know that the technology is supported without using the forbidden Thunderbolt word. All your favorite USB features. On the plus side, if you just, if you just buy the good stuff to begin with, uh, everything is downwards and backwards compatible. So if you buy a Thunderbolt compatible cable, it will work whether you're plugging it into a Thunderbolt port or not. Similarly, uh, you don't have to worry about whether, you know, oh, I can't plug this lower speed device into the Thunderbolt port on my laptop because it's all USB 4. It all works. It will just go at the highest speed available. That's, you know, kind of a common denominator between the port, the cable, and the device. Right. Okay. So if you buy a super fancy cable, maybe keep it separate so you know you'll have it when you need it, but it'll still work in a pinch anywhere else. Or just buy nothing but the super fancy cables and know it'll always be the right thing for everything and you don't have to worry about it. Okay. So uh, speaking of fancy cables and tech, another part of USB-C that's kind of confused me is the power delivery stuff. Is, is that going to be the same in 4? Uh, yeah, so that's actually also a nice improvement. Um, some of us have been slowly getting used to the, the new USB power delivery standard that's available on some, but not all, USB 3.2 devices and ports. Um, USB PD allows two devices to negotiate a charge rate between them rather than having you know a single, it always charges at this rate kind of thing going on. And that allows both extremely fast, high-rate charging to really power-hungry devices like laptops and high-end phones. It also allows extremely low-rate trickle charges to devices that don't need a whole lot of power, like, uh, you know, USB headsets or what have you. Right, more efficient overall in both cases. Exactly, but that's been kind of a nightmare with USB 3 because, you know, well, your, your USB 3 port might be USB 3.0 or it might be USB 3.1 or it might be USB 3.2 Gen 1, USB 3.2 Gen 2, or, and I am not kidding here, USB 3.2 Gen 2X2. What? I have no idea which of all those freaking things means it supports USB PD. Ultimately, up until now, the USB power delivery thing has mostly just been like, you know, if you get a Nintendo Switch, 
yeah, that uses USB power delivery. And if you've got, you know, the, the official dock that Nintendo sells, that's also going to support USB PD. So your device charges really quick. Um, but other than that, it's been really hard to figure out what's what. Now with USB 4, USB power delivery support is mandatory. There is no such thing as a USB 4 port that doesn't support USB PD. So it makes that at least that much easier. I know I have certainly been in the guessing game. Okay, well, if I plug this cable in, does it work? Okay, well, what about this one? Oh, maybe the other port. So that is a welcome sign of relief there, Jim. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another simplification that it brings, uh, it's it's one that I know inevitably is going to make a lot of people upset, but I, for one, am very happy about it. You know, with USB 3.2, we all started getting used to the USB Type-C adapters, but you know, there's still tons of stuff getting sold with the older Type-A, you know, the ones that uh, you had to have them the right side up or they wouldn't go in. Because USB 3.2 supported both standards. USB 4 does not. Everything is going to be USB Type-C. If it's a USB 4 port, it does not have the old school uh, you know, Type-A connector, period. Now, you can still use those cables and devices, but you'll need a dongle adapter to make those work. And uh, like I said, that's going to upset some people because they'll be like, oh man, I've got all these USB 2 devices that you know, use these USB Type-A ports and I don't want to have to you know, bother with the Type-C. I don't want to have to bother with dongles. I'm going to tell you right now, folks, just, I mean, deal with it, get used to it. Because the thing about the Type-C is, uh, you know, there is no wrong side up to plug it in. Um, now, it's not perfectly round. You can't just, you know, spin it around in circles. It is still a flat device, but there's no up or down. You can plug it in with either side up and it will just work. All right. Well, uh, I guess I'm looking forward to USB 4. After all, any signs as uh, when we might expect to see some of these devices actually hitting the shelves? We don't know for sure when we're going to start seeing these things. You know, right now the specification is published, but there are no actual devices out there. We should probably start expecting to see USB 4 in higher-end devices starting sometime in 2020. Uh, you're probably not going to really be seeing widespread availability until, this is just a guess, but I would say early 2021. Well, that gives me plenty of time to finally get rid of all my legacy USB devices, or at least I hope. Well, for our final story, here's something you won't have to wait quite so long for. That's some improved load balancing on AMD's Epic line of server chips. There, there's a long-running joke uh, amongst sysadmins and network engineers that, uh, you know, I didn't think it was DNS. It couldn't possibly be DNS. It was DNS. When it comes to, uh, when it comes to big servers, I kind of feel the same way about NUMA, uh, you know, NUMA stands for non-uniform memory access, but, uh, you know, for most of us lowly sysadmins, what it really boils down to is the thing that can really ruin your day in a multi-socket system. Um, it's very hard to get NUMA exactly right. Sometimes the memory that you want to access from CPU 0 is actually attached to CPU 1 or vice versa. And NUMA technology is, you know, it, it's basically how that memory gets shuttled from one bus to the other to serve the requests that you have. I've had less than optimal NUMA configurations bite me in the butt quite a few times on larger virtual machine hosting servers. And, you know, it's one of those things that you can spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to, okay, let me make sure and pin all cores for, you know, this one VM process to one physical socket so that I don't incur, you know, these crazy NUMA penalties when I've got maybe one thread running on one socket and one thread running on another. 
understanding what NUMA actually is and how it can bite you, uh, there's a new change in the Linux 5.4 kernel that will improve the NUMA load balancing on AMD's new Epic Rome servers. Now, on the one hand, it's easy to say, oh, well, hey, look, you know, Rome has only been out for a month or two and they're already finding things wrong with it they have to fix. But I think probably the more realistic angle to take with this is to, you know, look at all the benchmarks that everybody ran on Epic Rome that had it just absolutely trouncing the competition and wiping the floor with it and realize that was with the not quite proper NUMA implementation. So the real takeaway here is probably that Rome is actually getting even faster as these things get tuned better in the kernel. Yeah, I thought this story, I mean, it's great to just have, you know, better performance on existing hardware. And the commit also made me realize that, boy, you know, times are changing. One of the things that needed to get updated is that some of the heuristics built into the scheduler here, well, they used no distance tables back from 2011. And it turns out, well, today's chips, they just work differently. It's funny how much longer ago eight years sounds now than it used to, you know? Yeah, it was almost the same world. We had many of the same tools and technologies, but a lot can happen and change in eight short years. Those performance improvements and a host of other exciting kernel changes are set to be added in Linux 5.4, set to enter its merge window in a couple of weeks. That'll do it for this episode, but don't worry, there's always more over at techsnap.systems, where you can find our whole back catalog, easy ways to subscribe or get in touch. You can also find all the other Jupiter Broadcasting programs over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Make sure to check out Self-Hosted, a podcast showcasing free and open-source technologies you can host yourself. And of course, if you want more of us, well, we're both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and Jim, you're... At JRSSNet. Thank you all for joining us. See you in a couple weeks, everybody. <laughs>